Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. On March 14, 1965, Lyndon Johnson delivered what was almost certainly his best ever speech. In the wake of the Selma crisis, where African Americans were being terrorised as they sought to attain the right to vote, LBJ went before Congress and 70 million Americans watching on television to declare that no American achievement would matter, not victory on the battlefield, not unparalleled wealth, unless Americans overcame the country's crippling legacy of bigotry and injustice. Borrowing the phrase from a well-known civil rights anthem, Johnson looked his audience straight in the eye and confidently predicted to his fellow Americans that we shall overcome. Upon hearing these words, Martin Luther King cried, one southern governor felt sick, and Johnson's attorney general almost fell off his chair. Still, not everyone was impressed. For Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee activist James Foreman, Lyndon Johnson spoiled a good song that day. But Johnson got the Voting Rights Act, and by August 1965, with a torrent of other liberal legislation having already swept through Congress, it appeared that he was well on the road to his great society. In this second episode of Lyndon Johnson's America, we examine the optimistic times of 1964 and early 1965, when America appeared to be reckoning with its sin of racism and social injustice, when it prospered economically, when it went through a media and musical revolution, and as it sought to wrest preeminence in the space race from the Soviet Union. This episode is about the dream. Do you feel that it's wrong to discriminate against a person solely on the basis of his race or color. Well, the nigger's all right in his place, but they've always been behind us and just tell you the truth. I want them always stay behind me because I never have loved a nigger. And we shall overcome. You To say that we are mired in stalemate seems the only realistic, if unsatisfactory, conclusion. I shall not seek, and I will not accept, the nomination of my party for another term as your president. A teenager held up a sign, bring us together, and that will be the great objective of this administration at the outset to bring the American people together. Hello and welcome to the second episode of our series on Lyndon Johnson's America. This is the American History 2 podcast and as always I'm joined by my colleague Malcolm Craig. Hello Malcolm. Good evening Mark. Yes, good to be on to the second episode where we look at the dream. Uh, the Great Society, which we'll come on to like, finding out exactly what we mean by that. Civil rights, the space race. So the the atmosphere of positivity uh, in the United time. States yes. uh, at this period in time. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. There's one historian who actually called it, the, the, they wrote, wrote a book on 1965 and he says he can't remember a time when people have actually been, so he was alive at the time and it was like just so positive about everything. Which, which when you consider, you know, what we ended the podcast um, with the assassination of John F. Kennedy, um, which was just a huge jolt for the nation um, and seemed to throw everything that the 1960s promised into doubt. Um, it's testament to the, the early successes of the Johnson presidency and other things happening in the United States at this 
positivity was abounding, and I'm sure we'll get into reasons for why that is. Mm. And then we'll end just before everything hits the fan. Yes, <laughs> in, indeed. So I think it's important to kind of like set the context and background of what we're looking at here. Because this is a period where television is coming to dominate American cultural life yeah. and dominate family life and to dominate politics in many ways. So so what's happening? How is television growing and expanding? What's How many people have televisions at this point? Yeah, well, I mean, this is a point where by you know, sort of 90, 95% of the United States families have a television. Um, which is just crazy to think about it. When World War II ends, it's, it's the preserve of the elite. Um, by the end of the 1960s, not only do you have everyone on a television, but you've also got colour television becoming a more frequent thing and really bringing everything even more to life. But I really wanted to discuss television because I think you can't overstate how the arrival of television, I think, reshapes people's lives, how they view their own country, how you know the, the how the culture is altered and the 1960s is the first full decade where we've got this phenomenon going on and it's going to play a huge role in things that we're going to discuss in terms of civil rights in terms of the Vietnam War um and and I mean most prominently um we left off um on the assassination of John F Kennedy and the arrival of Johnson in the presidency that is one of the biggest shared national experiences that the United States ever has. Um, it's something, some crazy percent, I think it is up again at around 90% of people say they watch some form of television coverage of not only the Kennedy assassination, um, where, where it's announced, you know, whether it's Walter Cronkite on CBS or, um, Chet Huntley on, on NBC of that, be, of the, that Kennedy was dead. Um, and also then the days after where you have the commemoration services for the whole nation, um, unless you really despise John F. Kennedy, seem to be in mourning as they followed, you know, the, the, the glamorous Kennedy follow family all in black, um, and then the, the, and the, the service occurring in Washington DC. So it is, it's a phenomenon I really don't think you can, you can overstate and its importance to understanding the 1960s. I think it's also one of the reasons why as historians we've got to see it brought to life. So what's the nature of television in America at this time? Because, you know, in the, in the UK, the kind of like the, the kind of the, the birth of television is driven by, you know, this kind of, you know, the Rethian ideals of kind of, you know, educating and informing and all that. This is like, the British Broadcast. The British Broadcasting <laughs> Company, uh, Broadcasting, Broadcasting as London. Uh, but whereas in the United States, television is very much driven by commercial interests yeah. from the get-go. You have kind of like, you know, TV shows are always presented by General Motors or DuPont or, or whomever. Yep. You know, there's a, you know, an, a commercially driven, you know, you don't see the first commercial station in Britain. You know, this is the infancy of television, but you know, ITV, the third channel in the UK comes around in 1955 or something. Mm-hmm. It was the first commercial channel. Uh, so, you know, what's the, what effect does that have on the nature of the content that, that viewers are being exposed to? Yeah. I mean, well, if, if you're an advertiser, and generally, this is before the days when advertisers decided to target certain demographics. Um, you know, when you, you, if, to take a, to take a random example, if you were in Britain, and this has now arrived in America, so the American audience would get this, and over the summer you watched Love Island, you would see that it would be targeted at 20 to like 18 to 30 euros, you know, like at all the advertisement based around them. Um, which is why they were Uber Eats for their sponsor, because, you know, it's lazy people that just want to get pizza delivered to them. Anyway, I was off on a tangent. In the 1960s, the general view of advertisers was we want to get everybody. We're not targeting a certain demographic, which meant that television was was as sanitised as possible. As, you know, advertisers would frequently veto um, certain bits which they felt were lacking in taste or wouldn't appeal to everyone. They were very, very skittish about anything interracial. Um, you actually don't have the first interracial kiss on television until Star Trek, does it? Uh, not so, true. Oh. Sorry. Well, so there's an interesting point. The 1968 is mm-hmm. the Star Trek one. Yeah, and, it, and, and, it's, and it's an episode where they're forced to do it. In Uhura. Yeah. Now, I think, actually, in a more nuanced thing, that is the first kiss on American television between a white man and a woman of African descent. Mm-hmm. Because I think there had been kisses on 
American television between white men and women of Asian descent. Okay. Before yeah, that. So, so, so it is important. Yeah. I'm not denying its importance, but I think there's a subtlety to that. But they were rare. I yeah. mean, this is the point yeah. of it. It was, it was rare and I expect, and Star Trek was by that point a big, yeah, prime time show. Yeah, and uh, you you also have I think it's on the Petula Clark show, um, like she performs a, a bit. There, you know, this is an era when you get variety shows. They're just named after you know the Dean Martin show, the Petula Clark show, the Carol Burnett show, all these kind of things. Where it's just these mad skits and variety performances, music. All it sounds fantastic to watch. I kind of wish I could go back and they watch were, some of were, those, those, those were still part yeah. of television when I was a kid yeah. growing up. Um, in the UK, and, um, and she's she's doing something with Harry Belafonte, the famous you know African American, yeah. and um, they just as the bit they just sort of peck I think at one point, mm. and the sponsor goes nuts and tries to stop it being on uh, used, and I think I think they eventually particularly her tells them to go stuff themselves, and you know it remains on, but yeah, so you've got that side of things, um, and but but more generally, you've just got these sort of. You know, imagined happy places that the world is like, um, and leave it to Beaver or the Andy Griffith show where you've got good and you've got bad, and but good wins out against bad and everyone's happy. At least that's sort of the early 1960s. You start to get a wee bit more challenging as, as the decade goes on, but it is driven by this desire for, for advertisers to reach the whole family. And television was watched by the whole family. You know, it's not like kids had one in their room and everything like that. You know, this was a, this was a shared experience. So, how does this affect you know politics in terms? Of we go from the telegenic John F. Kennedy to the less telegenic. Let's be charitable with this: the less telegenic Lyndon B. Johnson. Yeah. So, how does? Yeah, I remember reading. Yeah, I remember how, reading does, a, how does that work? I remember reading a couple, of, uh, a couple of biographies about LBJ. It talks about the fact that he was actually quite a handsome man, but television did him no favors. And I've seen pictures, and I'm not entirely convinced. But uh, anyway, you know that's subjective. Um, but yeah, I think this is a really underplayed part about why Johnson, like when things start to go wrong, how things go really wrong in terms of his public image, and the fact that Johnson just, yeah, you know, as you said, John F. Kennedy was this. You know, he was a man born to be on television. Um, you know, he obviously famously <clears throat> uses it to his benefit in the 1960 election in the, the debate against Richard Nixon, where um, Kennedy's deemed a winner on television, whereas Nixon's deemed a winner if you listen to it on radio. Um, and when Johnson tries to replace Kennedy, Johnson has this idea in his head that you have to act presidential. Um, because if you ever listen to Lyndon Johnson talk on like the Johnson tapes or anything, he's anything but this idea of presidential. You know, he's salt of the earth um, in terms of his language and he's very expressive and all over the place. But Johnson had this idea that you had to stand up straight and deliver a presidential address like this um, and not show your sort of emotions. And what that just transfers into is this really kind of really woody, dull figure on, on television. And it's quite interesting. At some point in the presidency, when things aren't going well, he gives this press conference that I think is televised, and he does sort of let himself go and let him, and these aides are like, "Yes, yes, do that. You looked like a real person. Everybody got on board." And then he was, "Oh no, I better not do that again. That wasn't presidential." So Johnson just doesn't know how to use television um, in the same way uh, as Kennedy did, and, and other future presidents would do. So particularly Ronald Reagan, for example, but. In other ways, television benefits Johnson's goals. Um, you know, if we think of the civil rights movement, um, as we're going to discuss, Johnson's big on passing civil rights and voting rights. And one of the key things that allows this to develop is the fact that a couple of reasons is that when civil rights protests took, part, took place in the Deep South, what you would get is you'd get a Southern newspaper would report it. It would say, troublemakers... Causing blah, blah, blah. When really what's happened is Southern authorities have just beaten half to death African Americans protesting for basic rights. And that would get sent up. The national, the national newspapers would see the local papers report and would have to report on that. When television comes in, all of a sudden you can't hide when you are, for example, in 1963, fire hosing children. Um, as Bill Connor did. So you've got that. You've also got the fact that there's one historian, and I forget who it is, who argues that the idea of the, liber the quote-unquote liberal media actually stems 
not from Vietnam as a lot of people think it is, but actually from the civil rights movement, because there's actually clear evidence of, um, like chiefs, the CBS chief, for example, literally telling his television journalists, we are going to help this movement, um, and to show it in the most favorable light possible. Um, so, so in that sense, while it's going to really hurt LBJ's goals when it comes to Vietnam, or we'll maybe discuss the nuance around that in a future episode, you also have television driving um, new perceptions of the civil rights movement. So yeah. those television chiefs and journalists were on the right side of history. One might say that, yes, yes. yes. So, let, so let's move on to one of our kind of three major topics for today that we're going to cover relatively briefly, and that is the question of civil rights, because it is one of the landmark issues, of the, you know, one of the landmark issues of Johnson's presidency. And I think many of our listeners will be familiar with the progress of, you know, as historians such as the great Jacqueline Dowd Hall would talk about the long civil rights movement, you know, stretching back, well, I mean, into the 19th century, but in the 20th century, at least from the establishment of the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People in 1909, and then through the 20s and 30s and into the, the 40s, the desegregation of the military under Harry Truman. We get into the 1950s and we start seeing the, I think, the the classical or heroic period of the civil rights movement, as it's frequently referred to. Brown versus Board of Education, the NAACP's legal attempts to try and bring about civil rights. But then we move into the era of more uh, physical attempts to try and achieve civil rights with protests and freedom rights and all of these kind of things. So when we get into the 1960s, the civil rights movement has been up and running for a long time. Many, many people have put a great amount of effort, a great amount of suffering into trying to win civil rights for African Americans. When it comes to the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, if we start with the point, why then? Why 1964 and 1965? Why under Johnson? Why does it happen then? So, I mean, the main reason is pretty much the reason you just outlined. Is, is, how, is this long civil rights movement that's building up to a crescendo? And just, I think there's a certain point as well around about the late 1950s and early 1960s from what I understand that just a massive civil rights protest is now willing to die for the cause. And it's harder to oppose a movement that is willing to die for their cause. You know, they're willing to go in and confront the Deep South or any area in the South, you know, Nashville, Tennessee is obviously another big area where this happens. And they're willing to do these non-violent acts where they are putting themselves in a position where they could and many did die or ended up brutally beaten. So you have that. You've got, as I've just said, the television aspect of it all. Um, and you've got this idea and and maybe because it's been such a long civil rights movement, because you've got these people willing to die, you've got that, that more and more people are beginning to think the famous quote, you know, this, that this is an idea whose time has come. And then thrown into that mix, you have Lyndon Johnson. Um, and I would argue that he is a key figure in how the Civil Rights Acts come about and what they end up containing. Okay, so if I can stop you there, because what I want to uh, is to address next is the question of Johnson. Is he the key element in all of this in attaining these landmark civil rights acts? Because that sounds kind of racist. Yeah, that this white guy comes along, white like, man has to, and can like you know places his mighty hand. Upon the scene, and thus, oh great, we have civil rights now. After all the sacrifices and all the suffering mm. of, uh, you know, many, many African Americans and many mm. others, but a lot of African Americans who suffered to get to that point. Is it not just a bit? Oh yeah, here's a honky. You're going to sort <laughs> everything out for us. Yeah, I mean that's one of the horrid things that history throws up, though. I mean, like, who has the power? You know, you, you think, you know, take an even more recent example, and it probably even more problematic, like, how, how does South Africa end up if F.W. de Klerk acts in a different way, and he's an even more distasteful figure than Lyndon Johnson? How do you, how do you parse that out while still being honest about what happened in history? So, I don't, I wouldn't, I think Colin Johnson, the key is wrong. I think the key is the civil rights movement. I, I guess that's just, uh, you know, I don't think that's debatable. 
what I think Johnson is able to do is he's able to get better legislation than almost anybody on the entire earth could have got at that moment in terms of he's it's a meeting of the man and the moment. And I'll give you some examples if you want why. First of all, I think Kennedy assassination hits. Johnson's smart enough to go, okay, this is a huge moment. How do I use this? I say that Kennedy's biggest legacy was civil rights. And to honour his death, we have to pass civil rights. Kennedy's biggest legacy wasn't civil rights. Kennedy's converted to a late... I, I, think, I, mean, I think he was a wholehearted believer in it by the time he died. He had given a speech on it. He called it a moral issue. He'd sent a civil rights bill, which was going nowhere to Congress. But he was, like, Kennedy would have been wanted to remember for the Cuban Missile Crisis, more more likely. Uh, you know? I mean, but there's, there's one of the interesting things about Kennedy and civil rights, is that, I mean, I think you're quite right, that prior until the last, I mean, the last few months of his presidency, the last year of his presidency, yeah. in fact, even the last six months of his presidency, his concern about civil rights is driven by foreign policy. Yeah. And it's domestic political. It's driven yeah. by the reactions of decolonizing African countries, by the way the Soviet Union is propagandizing the civil rights yeah. issue in America. Yeah, so you've got that element to it. He also, so basically one of the reasons, when, when Kennedy dies, his civil rights bill is sitting there. It's going absolutely nowhere. And essentially, John Wood Johnson, actually I'm not going to go into the big depth, I'll go into, I'll just tell a couple of stories about it. So you have, it's basically bottled up in both the House and the Senate, because at this time, seniority means that generally all the key positions in Congress, most of the key positions in Congress are dominated by Southerners who get elected over and over and over again. They control the committees, which means you don't even get a floor on the bill and if a bill on the floor, and even if you do, then the Senate will filibuster it to death. They will eventually talk it down until people go, well, we need to do something else. So, one of the things Johnson's able to do is he's able to, he's get, he knows legislative minutiae inside out. So he looks at the House first. And in the House, it's in a committee, I think it's the Rules Committee, of a guy called Howard Smith, who's an implacable foe of civil rights. Southerner doesn't want civil rights whatsoever. And so Johnson goes, how how am I going to get this out? And he comes up with this idea of, which had been used really before, of what's called a discharge petition. So the idea of this being that if you get a certain, if you get a majority of the House to vote to just release the bill, then they'll do it. Now this very rarely happens because it's an insult to the chairman and you know Congress is a bad thing to insult people, especially back then. Um, but he manages through cajoling, uh, begging, pleading, doing what, who knows what, to basically get enough Democrats and crucially Republicans to say that they will discharge, that they will vote for a discharge position to the point it embarrasses Howard Smith to release that the civil rights bill from the House. And then it passes the House relatively easy. There's a majority there for civil rights. And then in the, in the Senate version, this is actually where Johnson is kind of smart enough to not take any credit for anything that he's going to do in the Senate side of things. The press asks him, how's the civil rights bill going? He's like, well, I don't know. You should ask the really key players, you know, they're in the Senate. Whereas, you know, he's pulling the strings behind. And one of the key things he knows that he has to do is get... A very important senator, the Senate Minority Leader Everett Duxon, the Republican on board, because Duxon controls a lot of these Republican votes who say, oh yeah, we're for civil rights, we're for civil rights, yeah, why wouldn't they be for civil rights? But if that actually means they have to sacrifice anything, they're not really for civil rights. They come from states in the Midwest and the mountain states where there just aren't that many black people anyway, um, so they don't really, or even Mexican-Americans, or uh, some of them are supposed to have some Native Americans, but they don't really, race, is, race isn't the, the key issue for them. It's not what they came to Congress for. Um, but if they can be persuaded um, to, to vote on the side of civil rights, then, you know, they'll have enough votes to break the Southern filibuster. And so basically what Johnson does is he gets Hubert Humphrey to make um, Everett Dirksen feel as if he is the most important person in the entire world. And the fate of the nation rests upon Everett Dirksen's shoulders. If only he, the man from Illinois, the man from from Lincoln's land, uh, you know, the party of Lincoln, he literally tells one Republican, he's like, look, you guys have your Lincoln Day dinners going on. I don't even know you can even turn up at them if you don't vote for this civil rights bill. But um, so, so by basically saying he's doing nothing about it, behind the scenes, pulling all these strings, working the phone calls all the time, 
And I've really simplified everything that goes on to get this civil rights bill. But those are just two aspects. And, you know, basically, Dirksen thinks he's going down his history as the man who passed the civil rights bill by the end of it. Um, he still is remembered quite keenly for it, but um, I think when you look back at it, Johnson is the key legislative player. Legislative player. So it wasn't so much the hand of fate was on Everett Dirksen's shoulder, more the hand <laughs> of Lyndon Johnson was placed <laughs> heavily upon his shoulder. So it's a big hand as well. A very big hand. So... We end up seeing the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. What are they successful? What in real terms do they actually do? Or are they more symbolic in terms of demonstrating that the federal government is taking the issue of civil rights and of racism and bigotry seriously? Well, I mean, they're, they're definitely symbolic. Um, but no, these these are bills with teeth. Um, I mean, I think I talked in the last podcast about the fact that the 1957 and 1960 Civil Rights Act might as well have been written on toilet paper and flushed down the drain um, because they, they were only really symbolic um, of something being done. But, you know, in 1964, uh, Civil Rights Act, you know, one of the reasons Johnson gives for being so in favour of it was his embarrassment at, I think it was his... Uh, it's sort of, I don't know if it was a cook or a cleaner or something, it's an African-American woman that, that helped the Johnsons and they asked her to, if she wouldn't mind driving their dog across Texas for them at some point and she asked, oh, can I really, could you not do that because it's already hard enough for me to find somewhere to stop and do the toilet and, do, and you know, that sort of hit home the, the shame that African-Americans went through. So obviously after that you have to desegregate public accommodations, hotels, bus stations, you know, obviously schools, although that is going to take a while and arguably still hasn't been 100% done and creates a lot of problems going forward. But no, the Civil Rights Act is key. The Voting Rights Act, um, as I argued on our A to Z episode last time, is, I would say, perhaps even more important um, because African-Americans have the weapon to, particularly in these southern cities, they can vote out explicitly racist mayors, so they can vote out um, the people like Bill Connor and Jim Clark, the real racist what a horrible person and and you see like even Mississippi which had something like 6% I want to say black registration to vote prior to um, the the 1964 presidential election I think by the 1968 presidential election there were over 50% of black people Mm. registered to vote so um, and actually one of the other flip sides of the Voting Rights Act is it actually hugely increases white voter registration, which is perhaps where you don't end up with a big, huge progressive surge, as you almost get poor whites who had also been kept from voting. They also... The law of unintended consequences. Um, and I mean, just, I mean, you, you talked about, you use a technique in teaching, don't you, where you talk about the literacy test they used to have to try and pass. I, I, make, know, I make students sit a 1964 yeah, Louisiana I mean, literary test. Maybe a couple of literacy examples test. of that would give a sense of what they had to overcome. Oh yeah, absolutely. Right. Students are horrified and amazed by by things like these literacy tests that are impossible to pass. So we'll talk more about actually the legacies of this in the final episode of our series, episode 6, which is about the legacies of Lyndon Johnson's America. Mm. We can return to the successes and the failures of civil rights that still haunt America up to today. So our kind of second topic that, that we really need to look at, if we're looking at the dream that Lyndon Johnson had for the United States, is his great society. Now we've talked about the great society before in a previous podcast, back in the dim and distant past mm-hmm. uh, of the podcast. We were both still in Edinburgh. We're days. both still in Edinburgh. We're both still in short shorts <laughs> and everything. You, you, you still are actually sitting yeah. here. We're in the middle of what laughingly passes for summer in the UK, just in case. Mark's wearing shorts. Yeah. It's yeah. quite distracting. <laughs> uh, so, very briefly though, can you reacquaint our audience with, well, when Lyndon Johnson says the Great Society, what is he talking about? What is the Great Society? Do you know what? It's everything and nothing. Um, no, it's one of those... It's because it's not an ideology. It's basically the Great Society is this vision. It's an optimistic vision for an optimistic age. Um, it's basically saying, okay, America's doing pretty damn well just now. You know, we're quite prosperous. Um, society has worked. We've been booming since World War II. But there are some people and some things that have happened. Some people that have been left behind and some things that have happened that we're not. We kind of want to fix a little bit. And do you know what we're going to do? We're going to get the government to fix them. 
Um, and so, for example, for, for African Americans or Hispanics, you have the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, you got the War on Poverty, which I also talked about in that previous podcast, um, legislation to make the cities look better. Um, for the poor, you, you also, for, of all races, you have, you know, the War on Poverty again, you've got Medicaid, which is healthcare for, for the poor, for the disabled and the blind. Um, you've got huge, vast funding pouring into America's schools that hadn't been there before. You, for the elderly, you have Medicare, which is basically an N- for our British listeners an NHS for Amer- America's uh, elderly, and you increase they, they also increase the amount they got in their Social Security, their pensions, and but it didn't just do stuff for the those who were viewed as downtrodden in American society. It also did things for the middle class, so. You got consumer protections, you know, like what credit cards could be do to you, what advertisers could do, all that kind of stuff. You got clean air and clean water legislation, and you've even got bloody highway beautification, which was the the, the sort of the pet project of of Lady Bird Johnson, um, which was to try and stop America's highways from just being big clusters of of billboards. Um, and then just randomly thrown in there in this huge mix, you've got the most liberal immigration legislation written since. There wasn't any in the 19th century. You know, if it wasn't for the Immigration Nationality Act, I think it was in 1865, America would be a lot more white than it is now because they had the the, the legislation that was in there in the in 1924. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, it's it's just this huge, huge, big tapestry of things the government is trying to do. So, if you compare this to kind of like other eras in, in American government, particularly kind of our modern era in the 21st century. You know, for listeners that have an understanding of modern US society and politics, it seems a bit odd the president was like standing up lauding this vision of America that ultimately rests on, ooh, the big scary federal government doing lots of things for the American people. I mean, it is big government in the biggest sense of the word. How did Johnson get away with this? Why were people willing to accept this? Yeah, I mean, you're right, because political scientists who look at the 1960s, their huge big thing is look at what the what the expectations of the federal government is. Before you go into the 60s, the government deals with this small slab of things. Even the New Deal hasn't expanded that much. By the time the 60s end, just what politicians are supposed to do with government is just hugely expanded and it's the great society. Um so why is that? Why, why? Well, I think there's a few reasons you can say that. The one thing is, this is post-World War II. This is post the New Deal seeming to conquer the Great Depression. You can debate that as whether that happened or not. This is an era when things are working in the United States and it looks like the government has done a good job in helping them to work. This is also a time of trust in government. And this is probably the hardest part for a modern audience to understand. Because ever since... The late 1960s to the 1970s, trust and faith in American government has just plummeted. Like if you look at a chart of it, it just is basically a straight line down to the point where it's at its lowest now. I think it briefly revives after 9/11 and then plummets again. As belief in conspiracy theory goes goes upwards, yeah, yeah. yeah. As Um, Catherine Owen said, amongst others, has demonstrated. Yeah, Um, and, and yeah, just I think this general air of prosperity just benefits it. So. Because Johnson's not really asking for a sacrifice. He's not, he doesn't go, we're going to do all these things, but you guys need to help us do them. He's just like, no, no, we got this over here. You just keep living your lives if you're in the middle class and everything and we'll sort of things. It's not like he's saying we're going to tax you. In fact, the funny part about the Great Society, the part that's probably hardest to understand just now is we talked about civil rights. The thing Johnson does before he passes civil rights is that he passes this big ass tax cut that Kennedy had tried to pass before he died. Um, and it's actually Johnson that passes it. So it's not tax and spend liberalism as it will become known. So putting my Mitch McConnell hat on, mm-hmm. this all sounds a bit like socialism <laughs> to me. Yeah. So in the modern era, in the 21st century, this would get attacked as socialism. I mean, you know, the kind of things like, uh, you know, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez talks about, you know, she is a very democratic socialist, but I mean, many of her policies to just pick her as an example, sound eminently sensible from this side of the Atlantic, from this, from my personal point of view. But it's like, oh my God, this is creeping socialism, this is terrible. So what was the reaction to 
Johnson's ideas in 1960s America? Was it attacked to social within the atmosphere of a Cold War? Mm-hmm. Is it attacked to socialism? Who's criticising it and why? Yeah, so there were there were of course attacks that it was socialism. I mean, the, the biggest thing that is that has stopped America having an NHS is the <laughs> is arguably the phrase socialised medicine. Um, and indeed, and, uh, Medicare and Medicaid, which passed, are attacked as this. Um, the American Medical Association does its best to prevent anything happening before a compromise is eventually reached and they sort of get on board. Ronald Reagan really gets his political start in some ways by railing against socialised medicine. Um, but the thing is, as I've just said, it's not really socialism at all. It's like John Johnson wasn't a socialist. Um, Maybe you could say someone's a social democrat, which I know because people over there have now called themselves democrat socialists get mixed up, but it's just sort of... But social democracy is a different thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As I said, it's not taxing and spending. It's Actually, there's a tax cut that comes before it. Private private enterprise is heavily involved in a lot of the things that happen in the Great Society. So Medicare and Medicaid, you know, one of the reasons that... Medicare, particularly one of the reasons that the American healthcare industry is still ballooning in cost is because it is, you know, it's that this private enterprise is heavily involved and there's government money in there. The war on poverty features a lot of private money. There's and there's no real element, as I said, of of collectivism. Um, America is still freedom, individualism, you know, all those kind of things. It's not. Um, there's not all these sort of strict rules in place that you associate with communism. There's not authoritarianism either. Um, so, no, it's not socialism. Good. <laughs> I mean, that's the, but that's the answer. Because, because you're I mean, right, it's not. But I mean, it's interesting that within the context of, you know, going back to the 1920s and the first Red Scare and then really when we get into the Cold War, that socialism is this... It's such a bugbear, even today in the United States. It's well, that, such a that, common thread. Yeah, and a total tangent, that's what I found really interesting with the, with the Bernie Sanders campaign, because they kept talking about this, it was this generational split in the lot between the, um, between people who found socialism an acceptable word and people who didn't, because people born after a certain date, shockingly after we were born, don't even really know what it meant. Like, mm. you know, so it's quite interesting. But obviously at the time we were talking about, um, you know, America's, Pretty much. I mean, the 1960s, I need to say again, one of the strongest currents that runs still running through society is anti-communism. And socialism equals communism. Yeah, yeah. In the so, so if people had convinced, been convinced it was socialism, it would have, there would have been riots in the streets. Yeah. So let's move on to our third element. We're going to come back to the Great mm-hmm. Society again in subsequent episodes and we're starting to look about how things start to fall apart in Johnson's America. But let's move on to the third element of optimism and that's the high frontier. Mm-hmm. The space race. Yeah. You know, we shall go to the moon. This is very topical. And do the other things. He never said what the other things were. That was the irritating part of that. <laughs> uh, but you know, Kennedy said we shall go to the moon. You know, so let's talk for a so, moment well, about I, the space yeah, race. Yeah, I want to turn on you. Why does Kennedy say we shall go to the moon? I mean, if you think about it, it's a bit of a random thing to say. <laughs> like, why, why did Harry Truman not say we shall go to the moon? So what was happening at that so, point that you think that makes Kennedy go, this is something I need to include? This is the inaugural speech. You did, the so, the, the, so the space race is, is fundamentally... Uh, it's a part. It's, it's simplistic, but it's a part of the Cold War. It's an it's an arena of confrontation between whose society. Because we need to make, always go back to this: the Cold War is a battle of modernisms. Both societies view themselves as modern, as advanced. Who and can be better at chess? Who can build be the best nuclear bomb? All these things. But can, yeah. the space. I mean, what is more modern in this era than the ability to go into space? And in the 1950s and in the early 1960s, the Soviet Union is winning the space race within certain parameters. America has always been more technologically advanced when it comes to space technology. The Soviet Union gets Sputnik into space first, October the 4th, 1957. Because it's actually lagging in technology, it's because it's nuclear, thermonuclear bombs are huge and heavy. They're about twice the weight of the American nuclear bombs. And they're experimenting with early intercontinental ballistic missiles. So they need missiles that are much bigger and heavier and more powerful than the American ones that are being developed, like the Atlas. So they say, well, hang on a minute. If we can put an atomic bomb, we can get something into orbit. And that's why it's actually a technological lag that causes this. 
But the Sputnik shock scares the American establishment. And Dwight D. Eisenhower, and I mean, oh my God, mm-hmm. there's a bleeping tin ball sent into space by the communists. We are freedoms are under threat. Uh, so this leads to the establishment of things like the National Defence Education Act, which mm. pours money into science and technology and universities, into the space race and into aerospace and all that kind of thing. And we get the creation of NASA. Mm-hmm. But initially still things aren't going well in the 1960s. Is it not? In the early 1960s, you have the, the Soviets have the first man to orbit. Um, so Yuri Gagarin. Well, the first, you know, uh, the first... Dog. Living creature on it. You know, there's Laika, the dog goes up, who dies. Uh, you get Yuri Gagarin going to the first woman in space in 1963, Valentina Tereshkova. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the Americans are lag- lagging behind. One of the important things though is the establishment of NASA. Because mm-hmm. prior to that, established in 1915, you have NACA. You know, the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. So this is before the space space. Mm-hmm. But in 1958, you have the establishment of NASA. And, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, I always get the order of those wrong. Lyndon Johnson, when he's in the Senate, is a key figure in the establishment of NASA. He really, really helps as, as a key figure in the Senate to get NASA up and running. Uh, and it's one of his, he's very proud of that achievement. He's very proud of his role, uh, in, in the establishment of NASA. It's a better name than NACA. <laughs> well, NACA, actually, NACA is remembered these days in the NACA duct. You don't want to know what the NACA duct is. You don't need to know what the NACA duct is, but you find them in cars sometimes. Uh, so Johnson is, is intimately involved in this. And then when Kennedy comes to power, Johnson, to give the vice president something to do, he has a lot to do with NASA and the space space. Now, he's one of the big movers and shakers. He's kind of portrayed rather badly mm-hmm. in retrospective accounts like Tom Wolfe's The Right Stuff which is you know, an account of the Mercury programme, the first of the Mercury 7, the first American astronauts, Alan Shepard, John Glenn, Gus Grissom, mm-hmm. all, all those figures. It's going to lead to the Apollos. Eventually, yeah. you, get, you get through kind of like, you know, yeah. Mercury, Gemini, and eventually mm-hmm. uh, Apollo. One of the, sorry, one Cold War aspect of this, and this is uh, slightly apocryphally immortalised in, in Tom Wolfe's uh, The Right Stuff, but when Gus Grissom, by the publisher of Time or Life, I think, said, we can't have an astronaut called Gus. Listen, we can't have, we can't have a hero called Gus. That's ridiculous. So, what's your first name? It's like Virgil. Nobody calls me Virgil. And he goes, "Remember, this is in the Cold War." Like, so, what's your middle name? Ivan. <laughs> and apparently, probably apocryphal, he's like, "Okay, you can be Gus." Yeah. The is it not in nineteen sixty five that the Americans have their first really big success, which makes them feel like they're back ahead of the Soviets? Is it the Gemini mission or something that they are? They they managed to orbit the moon or something so, like that. So, I think so it is that they they've had they've had successes in like you know getting Shepard and Glenn and everything into space, but they've also had a lot of problems. So things like the Mercury Redstone rockets were desperately unreliable. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were serious worries that when they had like you know Alan Shepard on on the launch pad, they're like. This could blow up. This could. This might. He might not come back. This could be a disaster. Interesting side note: Alan Shepard had to piss in his spacesuit. No, there's no. Here's the thing: they had him on the pad for so long. There was no facility because they only had to go up for about fifteen minutes. It was a, this like bump up, back down. They didn't think he'd be in his suit for so long, but because of delays, he was trapped in there for hours. Uh. And eventually, he goes, "Look, I've got to go to the toilet." I thought, well, we can't get him out because that's going to take, that's going to stop the mission. So he's like, well, piss in your space. <laughs> so basically, he, had to, he went into orbit, soaked in piss. There you go. There you go. It's not all glamorous as an astronaut. So the trouble is, the, the Soviets are also having disasters at the time. They're trying to develop new generations of rockets. So things like the Nedayin disaster wipes out half of their rocket establishment in a massive explosion and all of these kind of things. So... The Americans with Gemini are starting to haul back that edge that mm-hmm. they had in terms of successful space space yeah. exploration. And then, then you get you know, the the Apollo One disaster, featuring you know Gus Grissom that you've already mentioned, featuring the late great Gus Grissom. Yeah, sadly, so the Apollo One was the NASA's most traumatic day at that point. The Saturn rocket with three astronauts on top of it, and there was no facility to get them out of the out if something went wrong. And they were in a hyperoxygenated environment, and there was a fire in the capsule, and they all died in the fire. 
And it was the most... NASA took a lot of lessons from that. But it was... I mean, that was NASA's yeah. most traumatic day. Yeah, I mean, they got, like, presidential funerals and stuff. You know, I've seen images of LBJ actually at the, at the funeral. But this, um, this is one thing. But actually, I give a lot of credit to Johnson. In the face of the criticism that NASA got after Apollo 1, in the face of the terrible publicity that that generated, Johnson did not waver. Mm-hmm. He never once wavered in his support for NASA. As part of that, he wanted them to get through it. So... I think Johnson's support of NASA at that point. Uh, so, you know, he said, you know, Johnson always, even when he was VP, Johnson said to Kennedy, I think this is a good quote, this country should be realistic and recognise that other nations, regardless of their appreciation of our idealistic values, will tend to align themselves with a country which they believe will be the world leader, the winner in the long run. Dramatic accomplishments in space are being identified as a major indicator of world leadership. Mm-hmm. I think Johnson hewed to that throughout, mm-hmm. his, throughout his time. Yeah. Well, I mean, he gets sort of at the end of the most traumatic year of his presidency in arguably American history in 1968, if we assume the Civil War. Um, you get the Apollo 8, which actually, I, I misspoke earlier. It's the yes, one that yeah, brought, it's it, the it, one that it orbits, orbits the, moon, the moon, yeah. And they actually broadcast on Christmas Day, I think yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. So it's this sort of... And it, again, it's we talked about this, you know, families and the nation coming round to watch the television and seeing this happen. Can I, I just... Yeah. As a side note on this, there's actually a very interesting subtext to all of this about the role of religion in the space programme. Uh, there's a great book by the historian Kendrick Oliver uh, called To Touch the Face of God. And there is a, a serious debate in various circles about the role of prayer should the astronauts pray in space? Should Bibles and prayers be taken with them? And everything? what role does religion have in the space program? And you hear all the you hear religion probably Godspeed, John Glenn, yeah. all of these kind of things. But there is a there is a genuine debate Did that they takes not, place. No, is it a Apollo eight where they actually read Genesis? Yes, out? yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. That yeah. is that is actually the end point of a lot of debate and discussion, both in the public sphere within NASA, amongst the astronauts themselves, all of these kind of things mm-hmm. of, of what role does religion play in, yeah. you know, is this for the greater glory of God for the United States? You know, what purpose does yeah. this serve? And so, and so obviously, I mean, to sort of wrap up the, the, the space story, you know, you have in 19, July 20, 1969, you know, obviously it's just recently been the 50-year anniversary, you have the the, the landing on the moon and one still small step for man and all that. Um, and actually, while Johnson didn't get to bask in the glow of that, that, that got to be Richard Nixon. Uh, Johnson was actually there. Um, him and Lady Bird went and watched the yep. ceremony. So, it's, I mean, it's a fascinating story. That it was the Johnson about. administration's achievement. Yeah. And Nixon kind of gets the credit because he's in the White House at the time. But I think to say it's Johnson's achievement kind of diminishes it slightly in that the moon landing was a global Mm. moment. I was, you know, recently re-watching, I think it was actually uh, Von Howard's Apollo 13 Mm -hmm. with my wife, because we're just sitting on a Saturday night and we watch, oh, Apollo 13's on Netflix, Mm -hmm. let's watch that. Uh, And we were talking about the moon landings and everything, and talking about how this is a, it was the, the last, you know, we were thinking back through, you know, Kind of historical moments and like, what's the, yeah, this is what we do on our Saturday night, yeah. Uh, it was a moment and the last one we could really remember that was genuinely global. You know, in bringing the world together, you know, the, the moon landing, this was not just an, it was an American achievement, but it was an achievement for, for the human race to reach out mm. and land on another planet. Yeah, it doesn't matter if it's the closest one to us, it doesn't matter if it's a satellite orbiting the earth. That was a genuinely global Human achievement, mm-hmm. and so I think Alan Lyndon Johnson deserves a bit of credit for being one of the people who, despite the cuts in funding in '67, so they, they eventually brought an end to the Apollo well, program. You know, actually, that's the one thing. Like, you know, I do a lot of research on the 1960s Congress, and there was a lot of congressmen that thought the space program was a waste of money, and, uh, and the things they wanted to cut, particularly conservatives, were the war on poverty and the space. And, and, the space uh, and this is yeah. this is on, an ongoing debate about the value of. Of knowledge, and the space race is, I think, in its most idealistic moments, in its best moments, the space race, whether it's the Soviet Union or the United States, was about the expansion of human knowledge. Mm-hmm. 
was about how far can we go? Where can we take ourselves as a species? And I think that's what a lot of people don't understand. Some things you pay for purely to expand the frontiers of human knowledge. Because some people just don't get that. They don't understand well, what practical value does this have. Well, actually, the space race had an immense amount of practical value because it led to so many developments that we use in our everyday lives. That well, not you could say about. the same thing about war. You could say the same <laughs> about war. But there is a value yeah. to the space race and a value to that kind of thing. I think that's a good note to end the space race chat on. And today we're going to finish on something a wee bit lighter, or actually a wee bit heavier as it turned out. Um, we're going to discuss sort of 1964, actually kind of from the moment Johnson comes into the presidency to till we get to 1965, the change in American music as to what's going on. Because there is, you know, I mean, when we think of the 1960s, music is one of the first things that comes to mind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and obviously we'll discuss sort of the the different type of music that goes on in the Vietnam era because that's obviously a big part of it but you have um, the first big thing happens in 1964 you get the Beatles arriving on American shores and you have the British invasion that follows yeah the Beatles uh, the Kinks all of these all of these bands yeah no there's a, 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 they're all blurring into I mean obviously you eventually get the Rolling Stones but you've got so many of them Jerry and the Pacemakers all these ones but what was kind of really interesting about it to, uh, to me is the fact, I remember reading about the fact that the Beatles actually got a lot of their musical, their, their, their sort of musical influence was from listening to American R&B records from the sort of, from the African-American um, community. And, you know, Liverpool's a port city, you get a lot of exchanging of those type of things. Actually, uh, can I, I can I give a bit of nuance to that? Yes. Part of it's to do with American Air Force Base. Oh, okay. So just outside Liverpool, near Warrington, up until the late 1950s, there was the biggest American Air Force base in Europe. Uh, RAF, uh, no, uh, US, RAF Burtonwood, mm-hmm. it, was called. it was an American Air Force base, and it was huge. Was up to any one time, about 18,000 American military personnel at Burtonwood. It is now bisected what is now the M62 motorway. Junction mm-hmm. 8 of the M62 now uh-huh. covers. Burtonwood Motorway Services is now where it used to be. There's nothing left of Burtonwood. But... There was huge numbers of American personnel went into Liverpool in the 1940s and 1950s and they brought records or they demanded records. Mm. So Brian Epstein, the Beatles manager, manager yeah. he started running a record shop, buying records off American service personnel, selling them to scousers mm-hmm. or buying in records that American personnel wanted and they would come and buy them. And the Beatles were, this is one of the questions, but why does Liverpool mm-hmm. in the 1950s and into the 1960s have this kind of massive growth in this kind of music, influenced by blues and rock from the United States, Burtonwood Air Force Base is one of the arguments that it's one of the major things that causes that. There you go. Can you tell that one of us <laughs> works in Liverpool just now and has done for many years? Well, I got that uh, from uh, Daniel Immervar's uh, recent book, How to Hide an Empire, oh, about right, about yeah. the about the idea of US Empire and everything. And he mentioned yeah. he talks about Burtonwood. Oh, that's fascinating. That. No, I mean, and obviously, so they then take this, and you can't, I mean, I think everyone knows, but you can't really overstate how big the Beatles are in America when they go over there, and no. they're just, there's at one point, I don't know if it's in 64, 65, that the top four songs in the charts are all Beatles songs. Yeah, yeah and it's, it's ridiculous. And then all all these other British bands are going over there and having huge success as well, mm. and bringing essentially, like, you know, their version of this African-American R&B music to a white audience. That's not to say the Beatles, the Beatles were also popular with African African American communities, but but, the, but even more than the Beatles, I think the Rolling Stones. The Rolling they Stones, were the yeah. ones. I mean, they were they started. They were a blues black band. Yeah. You know, they started out being hugely influenced by the classic blues artists. Yeah. You know, Sonny Terry and Brown and McGee, Howlin' Wolf. Wolf. Yeah. You know, all the, you know they were you know they were even more than the Beatles. Yeah. yeah. They were a blues band. And yeah. they always wear a blues band. That's where rock you know, comes from. Yeah. But yeah, the British invasion is this huge. Thing. And then at the same time, you've got Motown arising and coming in and competing for for everything that's oh, yeah, going Motown, on. Motown, so. Stax Records. Yeah. I mean, all of these things. You see, the, um, some of the great uh, American artists. I mean, you know, I mean Aretha Franklin, possibly the greatest singer there has has ever been. The Queen, the Queen of Soul. I mean, a, you know, a gigantic figure in American. Mm. culture you know just yeah. a huge figure in in so many ways uh so you know you have the yeah the rise of you know of motown of your know, aretha franklin uh 
Mm-hmm. You know, Ray Charles, mm-hmm. you know, figures like that. But you also, if we're thinking about kind of like things like rock music, there isn't, you know, there is kind of the American, more challenging forms of American rock pre-British invasion. You know, bands like the Sonics and stuff like that, who release stuff that sounds like it should come from a much later period, uh-huh. but they are from 1960 onwards and everything. So you do have. The it's British, not quite the, the, mass British, audience the British invasion yeah. isn't the be all and end all. Yeah. There is an indigenous American uh, yeah. rock that is different from the Bill Haley and the Comets style of rock yeah. that you're familiar with in the 1950s. Yeah. But perhaps I guess the most portentous moment uh, for what's going to come later is is where you've got Bob Dylan at Newport Folk Festival in Rhode Island. Uh, 1965, you know, just as we're about to leave off this podcast, actually, it's, it's good timing. And Bob Dylan is a folk singer. He is part of the folk mov- movement, um, you know, that is, if you if you listen to Dylan's stuff at that time, it's very heavily politicised. Mm-hmm. Um, if you listen to, uh, whereas the Beatles at this point are singing, I want to hold your hand. Yeah. Like, you know, the, there's that contrast going on. And... Bob Dylan in what was seen as an act of complete and utter betrayal of the folk community plugs in his guitar um, at the Newport Folk Festival and I believe, is it Maggie's Farm he plays first? Um, then he plays Like a Rolling Stone. I maintain uh, that is uh, actually the best rendition of Maggie's Farm. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, I mean, it's incredible because you can hear them booing. I think, I think actually this is going, that is going to be the outro to this podcast is I'm going to play them and you can just hear people, his audience as one just turning again. I mean, no, no, not, not I, all of them. I but. don't think that's true because you can hear the split, you can yeah. hear the cheering yeah, yeah. and you can hear the booing. Yeah, yeah. And there's so much mythology has grown up around that performance. But can you imagine being a performer, even half your audience like booing you and they're like, I mean, imagine you go up in a lecture, like, you know, well, admittedly it'd be nice if half Look at Dylan, he doesn't care. <laughs> if you watch that, he doesn't care. Yeah. And I mean, there's the mythology of it, things like, you know, Pete, Pete Seeger had to be restrained from going on stage and unplugging them all. I mean, mm-hmm. that, uh, Pete Seeger was there, I mean, he was a huge figure in folk music, but he didn't want to he just, you know, the thing is, Pete Seeger didn't think the sound quality was very yeah. good. Uh, he didn't want to go in and he wouldn't have done that to a fellow performer. But there's, mm-hmm. there's a huge mythology. You know, I think, you know, not that many people were there, but millions of people claimed to be yeah. in that performance. That's like Woodstock, isn't yeah, it? Like Woodstock. seven million you know, people were at yeah. No, I mean, it's, I, and, it, and it sort of harkens this way that now rock music is going to become more political as well. Um, as as Dylan sort of plugs in at that point, you're about to get. I mean, the Vietnam War is going to play a huge role in that. Yes. Um, but at this point, even the Beatles are starting to think that way, and more and more acts are starting. And yeah. Music is going to become much more political um, when we discuss it uh, later at the time. It's also quite interesting. I find that one of the songs, obviously, Dylan plugs in and plays is "Like a Rolling Stone." Yes. Which is something like six, five or six minutes long, and before. Artists had to keep all their songs to like two and a half minutes because the radio wouldn't play them otherwise. And then Dylan just released this like five, six minute lot, fantastic song mm. and just was like, okay, then don't play it. And of course, you know, it went to, I think it went to number one in the billboards and was played nonstop. So you've just got all these changes happening. I think that's what, I mean, maybe it's, maybe it's imagined this way, but it's what sort of makes the sixties more so interesting to me is you just seem to have so much going on in every facet of life. True. And like I said, it might be like that today. It might be like that in the 1910s and we just don't appreciate it. But And that's, I think, a useful point for us to conclude this episode of the podcast where we've looked at the optimistic vision of Lyndon Johnson's America through the lens of civil rights, the Great Society and the Space Programme. And our next episode... We look at the darker side of things, in particular, the war. And we talk about the war. Is that the Dominican Republic? (laughs) We're talking about Vietnam. So next time you join us, we'll be thinking about Lyndon Johnson, Lyndon Johnson's America and the war. Thank you very much. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.